Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Tomorrow, the 23rd of June, is International Women in Engineering Day. The event is organized by the UK-based Women's Engineering Society and celebrates the amazing work done around the world by women engineers. Here at Physics World, we're also celebrating because we believe that all the best physics eventually becomes engineering. Indeed, we're devoting two episodes of the weekly podcast to women in engineering. Next week, we'll meet an engineer who is developing bioelectronic medicine that she hopes could be used to improve the management of type 1 diabetes. But today, Physics World's Margaret Harris is in conversation with an engineer who talks about the challenges of developing a reliable breath test for cannabis use. Roadside breath tests are an everyday part of policing. If there's been a collision or there's some other reason to suspect a driver may have been drinking, police will ask the driver to blow into a device that samples their breath and calculates how much alcohol is in their system. But what happens if the driver hasn't been drinking? What if, instead, they've been smoking cannabis? Here to answer that question is Kavita Girage, a materials research engineer at the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder, Colorado. Hi, Kavita. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So I understand you're involved in a research project aimed at developing a reliable breath test for cannabis. Um, Let's start with the basics. Why would it be useful to have this type of test available? Well, the the short answer is everyone has a stake in keeping uh, people safe on the road. And at this time, if there's a um, accident or some other incident and law enforcement suspects cannabis use, there's really no choice except to send them to the hospital where they can have their blood drawn and then the uh, blood can be analyzed to look for evidence of cannabis use. But of course, that all takes time. So somebody at the scene of the accident uh, may have recently smoked cannabis, but by the time they get to the hospital, there could be an hour or even Uh, several hours before their blood could be sampled. So a roadside tool uh, that provides chemical evidence for recent cannabis use could provide an additional piece of information for those officers. And I should give you some additional context here because um, cannabis is actually a legal drug in the state of Colorado. It's not legal in the UK, but it's totally legal in Colorado. Um, It's okay to consume it for recreational or medical purposes. Um, So the police aren't going to be concerned about just the bare fact that there's cannabis in someone's blood. Right, that's a really good point. So prior to 2012, there was no legal cannabis use in the United States, in any of the states. But in uh, 2012, both Colorado State and Washington State uh, legalized recreational cannabis use. So there's, there's a change. It's now more like alcohol, right? It's possible to consume cannabis as long as you do so uh, legally. And you just can't drive if you're too stoned to be safe on the roads. Exactly. Exactly. And that makes a difference because um, ideally, police officers would have the same types of tools for cannabis that they have for alcohol. Because of course, people can consume alcohol in their home at restaurants and so on. But it's not 
okay to get into your car and drive um, and endanger yourself and other people. So, so that that's a trickier question than just has this person uh, used cannabis in their lifetime or in the last week. So how do you go about how or how would you go about detecting cannabis in a user's breath? I mean, it has a pretty strong smell, of course. Um, is that what you're looking for? Oh, that's a really great question. So. The efforts that we've been engaged in so far, and most other people who are working on this problem, have focused on one specific molecule, which is delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, which is THC. And we're focusing on this molecule because it's the primary psychoactive molecule in cannabis. So it's the compound that creates that feeling of intoxication. And so this is just parallel to the way that ethanol is what's sampled in someone's um, breath uh, to look for alcohol use. And the, uh, the challenge, or one of the challenges, is that THC is a very different molecule than ethanol. It's um, not very volatile. Um, ethanol is actually very volatile. There's a lot of ethanol in someone's breath uh, when they've been drinking. And there's also a lot of ethanol in someone's system uh, during intoxication. So a standard drink, so a glass of wine or a shot of um, some other kinds of beverages, that's about 14 grams of ethanol. And then, of course, somebody who's intoxicated may have had two or three drinks or perhaps even more. Cannabis is completely different in the sense that a, a joint has... Um, a much smaller amount of plant material. And then of course that plant material is mostly plant material. Only a small portion of it is actually this active psychoactive molecule, THC. So we're looking for a very small quantity of this compound in breath. So it'd be comparable to trying to look for, I don't know, the, the contents of a particular type of hop or that you have in beer or a particular chemical that happens to be in, in wine, but it's not the, the main thing. Perhaps, perhaps. And uh, I, I said earlier that THC is a very different molecule chemically than ethanol. It's not very volatile. And so we're not entirely certain how it's carried in breath. Uh, we know that ethanol is a vapor when it's detected in breath, but the THC uh, is possibly carried by aerosols that are formed deep in the lungs, possibly also um, a vapor. And this is information that we're trying to work through so that we understand uh, how this molecule is actually being carried in breath and how um, to best create materials to calibrate eventually uh, breathalyzer devices. Okay, so you and your colleagues at NIST and the University of Colorado Boulder recently did a study where you tried to, well, basically it's a pilot study where you tried to work out, you know, sort of understand these things in detail. Could you describe what you did for that study? Sure. So, so thank you for uh, mentioning that this is a pilot study. So we started with a pilot study so that we could work out some of the, the challenges with this type of research. So our colleague, Dr. Cinnamon Bidwell at the University of Colorado, she uses a mobile laboratory model to study people in the state of Colorado who use cannabis. And this um, model allows participants in her study to uh, use cannabis in their homes just as they normally would. They can use uh, legal market products that they purchase themselves from a licensed dispensary. And then when they're finished using their cannabis product, 
They can walk out to the mobile laboratory very quickly and also safely. And then they're essentially in the laboratory for the study assessments. The pilot study essentially added breath sampling onto a study of cannabis and anxiety. So everyone who was recruited for her study was given the opportunity to participate in our study of breath. And this is um, a study that that I developed with um, my colleague, Dr. Tara Lovestead at NIST. And we've been working on developing this study for several years now because there are a lot of different um, aspects to conducting a human study with people who use cannabis during the, during the study session. And so we had a variety of approvals to go through. So the uh, cannabis use is not monitored in Dr. Bidwell's model. So that's one, one challenge. So there's no one um, sitting there counting the number of puffs or anything like that. Something that surprised us actually was that several of the participants who were offered the opportunity to participate in our study said very specifically that they weren't interested in participating in a study of cannabis breathalyzer feasibility. Um, so we weren't we weren't anticipating that, but it uh, just shows that the uh, the process um, is working exactly the way it should. Right? They signed up for a study of anxiety, and that's what they wanted to do. And so this this additional study wasn't interesting to them, and so so they chose not to participate. Okay, that, that's 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 interesting because um, you know it's it's only recently become legal, so I guess some people might still be quite wary of engaging with anybody official when they're when they're using well it's i suppose possible that some people were uncomfortable that the breath study was conducted uh by a federal laboratory so that that might be behind uh some of the the concern although we weren't involved in the breath collection portion of the study at all so the the samples come to us uh coded and um they the colleagues at the University of Colorado handle all of the participant interactions. So we don't know who participated in our study. They could be people that we know, but we have no idea who the, the participants are. Now, was it hard for you as a scientist employed by the federal government? Because I, I should say that the cannabis, although it's legal in Colorado and quite a few other states now, it's still illegal at the federal level. Was it hard for you to be even be involved in a study like this? Well, it did take some time for um, NIST to feel comfortable with this with this research. I think that after legalization in 2012, um, again in Colorado and Washington State, my colleague Dr. Chair Lovestead saw that a breathalyzer type device would be useful, and she correctly predicted that um, that law enforcement would want this type of tool, um, and that it would be a difficult technology to develop. But it took some time for our agency to feel comfortable with doing research with human subjects who use a cannabis product. And, and actually, this was true for many people involved, not just because um, we're federal employees, but, but just because asking uh, participants to use a drug that still has a, a somewhat complicated legal status is uh, is more challenging than than um, than other types of studies and legal market products um, are of course available to participants in Colorado, but researchers wouldn't want to be uh, providing people with um, 
cannabis, for example. So, so it's very important in these studies that the participants actually purchase their own products um, so that it's not a, a, a way to actually obtain drugs. Right. I got you. I got you. So, you know, what did you find out when you took these breath samples that your colleagues had collected? What did you see when you analyzed them? So, so we uh, used an approach in which we collected samples um, or our colleagues collected samples at the laboratory, and then they came back to us for processing in the laboratory. And then we analyzed them in the laboratory with high sensitivity laboratory instruments. And we found, uh, first of all, that the quantities of THC in uh, the various samples was quite small. Um, we were anticipating that, right? This is not the first study uh, of uh, breath samples from cannabis users. It's, I believe, the seventh. Um, these have mostly been small scale studies using a variety of different types of uh, breath collection devices or breath sampling devices. So we were anticipating the um, the small concentration, the, the challenging detection. What we learned uh, was was essentially that this is this is uh, challenging research. There are a lot of different places uh, where things can be um, unexpected. So, for example, our participants provided a baseline sample. Then they went into their homes, used their cannabis. They collected a blood sample immediately to look at compliance with the protocol. Did the person actually? use cannabis in their homes. And then there were a number of other assessments. And then at about an hour after their use was the breath sample. So that breath sample was actually the very last thing that they had to do before they headed out and went about their day and were done with this study. And one of the uh, comments we had from some of the research staff is that they felt that, you know, towards the end, hey, people are getting tired. They were tired of being part of this study and they were eager to be done. Um, so we have some questions about whether the first breath sample and the second breath sample, the one that's actually after the cannabis use, were actually comparable samples in terms of their quality. And so that's something that we learned. And it was great to learn it on a pilot scale because we can do something a little bit differently in our future studies. And presumably because you weren't supplying them with the drug, but for the reasons you stated before, they, they could have gone and bought a lot of different possible products at the dispensary. So that might have caused some variation as well? That's, that's a really great question. The specific cannabis product in this case uh, was the same product. Now, of course, participants were recruited over a period of uh, multiple years. So there might be changes in that product um, just from natural variation. But in fact, as they were recruited into the study, um, based on their, their history and, and, and actually um, other details, they were placed into a group to use a specific product um, that was sold by a specific dispensary. I do know that um, other uh, study models um, may include a variety, a wide variety of products. So, so that's just a difference um, in terms of how the study was designed and what the Institutional Review Board that approves the study uh, felt comfortable with the researchers specifying. So what sort of, what did you see in your results? I mean, presumably 
you you were, I think you were, said you were expecting to see a higher concentration of THC in the breath sample after someone had used, especially if since you got the blood sample to prove that they they did in fact use cannabis. Is that what you saw? Well, so I think first I want to point out that for many of the participants in this study, which which was mainly um, designed as a study of uh, anxiety, their cannabis use. Um, was not necessarily registered based on the the blood uh, the blood concentrations measured before and after, or if the use event registered based on the blood concentrations, it was uh, small uh, compared to, for example, um, many studies of recreational users which have which have sampled uh, blood. So this participant population um, is probably not. Uh, as representative of the recreational cannabis population um, as would be ideal. That said, um, we sometimes saw that expected increase an hour later. We sometimes didn't. And one of the things that we're really honing in on besides this, um, this question about the participant population and whether or not they were dedicated to to following the protocol is this question of the breath sampling and whether the sampling uh, before use and after use was really comparable. Something that we were in, intending to do in this in this pilot scale study was actually measure the volume of breath going through the device um, at both sampling time points, and uh, there's there's an additional um, a device that's added onto the to the sampling device to do that, and uh, there's an app that is used to measure breath volume. Unfortunately, to to use that app, the researcher and the participant have to be close together uh, because the researcher needs to manipulate that app. And most of this study, well, we got approval for this study in March 2020. So one. A participant was enrolled in the study, and then we closed the study for several months um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and thought about how to restart the study safely. And one of the casualties of that was that we eliminated this um, breath volume measurement because the participants and the researchers are already in this mobile laboratory. It's kind of a tight space. And we didn't want them to have to be close together during during all of these uh, sampling procedures. And so so we didn't have that measurement. Well, wow, it sounds like just piling challenge upon challenge. I mean, what's the what's the way forward here? Do you think there ever will be a, a possible sort of cannabis breathalyzer? You know, what's the next step for this research? So we went into this research to understand the challenges. So that's part of the reason I'm talking to you so much about the challenges. And having gained this experience over the last couple of years with challenges, we have a number of paths forward. Um, one of the statements we make in our publication on this pilot study is that we're not sure that a single measurement um, is the best path forward. And that doesn't mean we don't think it's possible. Um, there are actually a number of clinical breath tests that are based not on one breath measurement, but on two breath measurements. And by obtaining two different breath measurements, um, where participants essentially serve as their own baseline, it is 
possible in these clinical approaches to um, look at digestive disorders. So that's totally different goal. And our next study, um, which will use the same device and, and use the, the knowledge that we've gained from this pilot scale study, will examine the feasibility of this two-point measurement. So that's one path forward that, that we think could be very promising. Another aspect of this research that's challenging, but potentially has a good path forward, is the challenge of working with human subjects. Because of course, we don't know how much somebody has smoked. We don't um, have complete control over uh, how they breathe into the device. There, there are a lot of variables involved in working with people. And absolutely critical part of cannabis breathalyzer development, uh, something that we're hoping to do is create breath surrogates, um, materials that we can deliver to devices in the laboratory that mimic the important characteristics of breath after cannabis use. So that, for example, uh, we could examine devices side by side and know that we're delivering the same material to those devices and, and making a fair, fair comparison. And this is essentially how alcohol breathalyzers are calibrated, right? So, so uh, there are a number of different manufacturers who make evidentiary breathalyzers for alcohol. And these devices are calibrated. There are actually a couple of different ways to calibrate them. And there are requirements about how often they're calibrated. And then there are uh, quality control checks so that you know that it is working correctly. And all of those um, pieces of uh, infrastructure support the successful de deployment of uh, alcohol breathalyzers. And I think that having some of those materials available for uh, cannabis or for THC would allow the industry and the other people who are working on this problem one more tool with which to evaluate their devices and push them forward. That's a that's a very good good point. I was wondering what the the sort of NIST angle came into it. It's about it's all about the calibration of devices and and making sure that the devices are are, are standardized. In fact, it, absolutely. That's that's ultimately what uh, we hope to do for for this technology. But it's exciting for us and also important for us to to get into the field and make these measurements ourselves because it helps us to understand the design specifications for this type of um, calibration material and it helps us understand the, the challenges that go into this type of measurement. And so I think that that knowledge is invaluable. Kavita, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Kavita Jirigay of the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder, Colorado, in conversation with Physics World's Margaret Harris. They were talking about a study on breath tests for cannabis, and if you'd like to know more about that study, you can read it in full in the Journal of Breath Research under the title THC in Breath Aerosols Collected with an Impaction Filter Device Before and After Legal Market Product Inhalation, a pilot study.
Jirigay and her co-authors would like to make it clear that they compared data published in peer-reviewed literature and couldn't include unpublished data shared with them. They would also like to note that they are device agnostic, and their vision is to provide the entire industry with the tools needed to make a meaningful device that the legal system and the public can believe in. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Kavita Jirigay and Margaret Harris for joining me today. The podcast will be back again next week when our guest will be the biomedical engineer Amparo Guamez Gonzalez. In the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Gluster puts the question, will AI chatbots replace physicists to the astronomer Carol Green and the condensed matter physicist Philip Moriarty? You can find all episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.